Something's different today. Why, why are all of you looking gray? Everyone's looking gray. The chairs are looking gray. The, the, the table there is looking gray. The lights are looking gray. My hands are looking gray. Can, can someone tell me what's, what, what's wrong, what's, what's different? Something's different. Oh, these glasses. I get it. I get it now. If you wear gray glasses, the world is going to look gray. Right? Pretty simple. Did you know that we all wear glasses when we read the Bible? All of us. There's nobody here who reads the Bible without wearing glasses. Our upbringing, what our parents told us from the time we were children, those are glasses that we wear when we read uh, the Bible. The friends we hang out with, uh, the media we consume, our worldview, they're all tinting our reading of the Bible. And there are two ways we can see this. First, we can wear the glasses of culture and see the Bible and read the Bible through the lenses of a culture. This is obviously wrong. Or we can wear the glasses of the Bible and view culture through the glasses of the Bible. And this is obviously correct. But I'm guessing that on this topic of gender roles, the role of men and women, on the topic of gender roles, I'm guessing that most of us are reading the Bible through the lens of what culture is telling us. And as I said last week, when it comes to gender role, there are two broad positions among Christians. Both positions hold that men and women are absolutely equal in every way. Now, egalitarians, they believe that men and women are equal, but men and women are also similar in the sense that men can do everything that women can do, and women can do everything that men can do. Complementarians, on the other hand, believe that men and women are absolutely equal, but God has given men and women unique and distinct roles for their mutual benefit. Now, now if you believe in either of these positions, can you clearly explain and robustly defend your view with a biblical basis? Do you know where in the Bible and how in the Bible is the stand that you believe in, whichever it may be, egalitarian or complementarian, will you be able to justify your stand from the Bible? I'm guessing, I'm guessing that many of us who do have a stand on this issue may not be able to defend your biblical belief on this issue, biblically. 
And so I see there are two errors that are possible here. If you hold an egalitarian position, but are unable to defend it biblically, you're committing the cultural error. You're reading the Bible through the lens of culture. On the other hand, if you hold the complementarian view, but you're unable to defend it biblically, then you're committing the traditional error. You have a vague notion that I think most churches don't have women elders. I've never figured out why. They must be right. It's been like that for years. They, they must be right. If that's your view, then that's the traditional error. Today, in God's grace, we are hoping that we can walk away from both the cultural error and the traditional error, and we want to really humbly come to God to understand what the Bible has to say about this. So welcome to the second week of theological fireworks. We've handled some very difficult issues last week. And uh, I don't see anyone carrying any scars. I I'm good. I haven't been stoned. You don't see, see me any carrying any wounds from uh, uh, the battle last, last week. Uh, and today we're going to handle, we're going to look at uh, another very difficult issue. Uh, if this is your first time in, in New City, we are in the middle of a sermon series titled, What is the Church? And this is the sixth week of the sermon series. And all the five earlier sermons are available online. I'd encourage you to watch them. The scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 23. I've requested Rebecca to read it out for us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 23. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and out of the birds and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word to our hearts that we may wholly see and wholly align with Jesus Christ's desire and design for his church. And as we today discuss another difficult issue where the global church is not agreed upon, we pray for your grace, for your protection, for humility, and for a oneness of spirit. We pray for joyful unity 
despite whatever differences we may have within us. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning, I'm going to use this uh, passage as the doorway um, from which I want to draw out three biblical principles and a few practical applications. Three principles and a few practical applications. Let's begin with the three biblical principles on gender roles. The first one. The Bible is absolutely clear that men and women are created and redeemed with equal worth, value, dignity, and significance. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. At creation, male and female were equal image bearers of God, equal in standing, equal in every way, equal in which both men and women reflected and carried the image of God. And this principle of absolute unquestioned equality is confirmed in the New Testament as well. Genesis chapter 3 verses 27 to 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have Put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Men and women are co-heirs and equal in every way. And the absolute equality of men and women is absolutely affirmed. That's the first biblical principle I wanted to draw out. Absolute equality. Here's the second principle I want to draw out for us this morning. The Bible clearly calls men and women to distinct and complementary roles, both in the Old and the New Testament. I'm going to take some time to unpack this. The portion we read, Genesis chapter 2, is an unpacking of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the executive summary of the creation account. And Genesis chapter 2 is a more detailed account. We look at Genesis chapter 2. But let me read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27 for us. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I'd like to point out two things for us in this verse. First, let's look at how this verse begins. Verse 26. Let us, God said, let us make mankind in our image. The word let us, God, when God says let us make mankind in our own image, it most likely refers to the Trinity. The Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit. And one of the things it means when God said, let us make man in our image, is that humanity, male and female, together bears the image of the Trinity. Stay with me here, please. In the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are absolutely equal in every way. 
There is no hierarchy in them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's no hierarchy, there's no standing, there's no order of importance. They are absolutely co-equal in every way. Similarly, when God said, let us make man in our image, and when God made us in the image of God, male and female, the image of God, the Trinitarian image of God in which we were created in, male and female were absolutely equal in every way. No hierarchy whatsoever among male and female. But, but there's something remarkably unique and remarkably beautiful in, way, in the way the Trinitarian God lives. John chapter 14, verse 29. Jesus said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Hold on, hold on here. What, what, what's happening? Did we not agree just now that the Father and the Son are absolutely equal in every way? But, but why then is Jesus saying that he's totally submitting to the authority of the Father? The Son, Christ Jesus, who is equal to the Father in every way, is joyfully, is voluntarily submitting to the Father's headship authority for the sake of our redemption. So in this absolutely equal relationship between the Father and the Son, the Father graciously assumes headship and the Son voluntarily assumes submission. Simple question. Isn't this unfair? Now, aren't they equal? The father and son, you just said, are equal. Why should the son submit to the father? Isn't it unfair? If this is indeed true, if it is indeed unfair, you and I, we don't have a salvation. We don't have a salvation. If the son, who was equal to the father in standing, had not submitted to the Father voluntarily, joyfully, obediently, and died and given up his life to die for us on the cross in obedience to the Father's command, we wouldn't have our salvation. We would all have been destined for hell. And so, the Bible says we are made, male and female, in the Trinitarian image of God. It simply means this. Just as God is the head of Christ, even though they are both equal, the husband is the head of the wife, even though they are both absolutely equal. This complementarian design of male and female bears the Trinitarian image of God. A new city, we believe, complementarianism bears the seal of the Trinitarian image of God. What I just took five minutes to explain, the Apostle Paul captures it so beautifully in just one verse. Just one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So this complementarian idea of headship and submission is flowing from the image of the Trinity into the image of male and female in which God created us. And that is why at New City we find complementarianism to be so beautiful. In complementarian living, according to God's beautiful creation design, God is inviting the husband and the wife to the incredible joy and privilege and beauty of mirroring the image of the father's headship and the son's voluntary submission in our marriages and in our churches. That's the second biblical principle. In complementary living, in, in marriage and in church, we have the joy and the privilege of mirroring the father-son relationship in the Trinity. That's our joy and privilege. The third biblical principle I want to draw out. In his life and ministry, Jesus endorsed this complementarian creation order. Jesus was, was radical in the way he engaged with women in his time. He was radical. He challenged every notion of inequality between men and women. In that culture, women having their periods were, were isolated in their culture. Jesus allowed uh, such an unclean woman to, to approach him, to touch him, and he healed her. No Jewish rabbi would entertain a woman disciple. Jesus allowed Martha's sister Mary to sit at his feet and learn. That is the posture of a disciple. In allowing, when Martha was working the kitchen, in allowing Mary to sit at his feet, he endorsed Mary as his disciple. No Jewish rabbi would do that. Jewish rabbis, I mean, if this is your first time in a church, Jesus was born in a Jewish family, in a Jewish culture, but he was, non, he was born not just for Jews, but he was born for all people, people like you and me as well. Jewish rabbis had only male followers. So when they traveled on ministry, only male disciples would go with them. But Jesus had women traveling with him as his disciples on ministry journeys. Jesus not only allowed women to travel with him, but as Luke chapter 8 tells us, Jesus allowed women to support him financially. Unheard of in that culture. Jesus allowed women to minister to him publicly. He allowed women to wash his feet he, publicly. He allowed women to pour perfume on his feet. And lastly, I mean, this, this really blows my mind. Lastly, in a culture where women were not allowed to, be, to bear witness in a court of law. If you're a woman and you're a witness to a crime, your witness was not valid in a court of law. 
in a culture where women were not allowed to be witness in a court of law, Jesus called women to be the very first witnesses to his resurrection. To his resurrection. Remarkable. The very first witnesses, the entire gospel hinges on his resurrection and Jesus chose women to be the first witnesses to his resurrection. And yet, and yet, Jesus appointed only male apostles. There is no getting around this. There is no getting around this. If Jesus had appointed one woman apostle, Mary perhaps, this complimentary and egalitarian debate would have been settled for eternity. He just had to appoint one woman apostle. That's it. One of the twelve. I mean, corporate boardrooms are not going to like that. They want 50-50% diversity. But, but at least Christians would have stopped arguing among them. One woman apostle. No. Jesus appointed only male apostles. And there is no getting around this. And so at New City, we follow the way of Christ. We follow the way of Jesus in encouraging women to perform all ministries, but only biblically qualified men serve as elders. Those are three broad biblical principles. I had five more to draw out. I'll share that to you in a written form, but I've been told, I didn't realize it, a few people have been telling me that my sermons have been crossing 50 minutes, and today I have resolved to keep it within 40 minutes. I thought you were going to stone me when your hand went up, right? So I'll share more, but I'm going to limit to three uh, powerful biblical principles. Now let's move into practical application. What does it mean to live a complementarian life? Aligned with God's beautiful creation design. I want to draw three practical applications. Life in the city, life as a married couple, and life in the church. Life in the city, life as a married couple, life in the church. Let's start with life in the city. God's complementarian design for male and female is meant only for covenantal relationships. You see, marriage is a covenantal relationship. So the husband's headship, gracious headship, and the wife's voluntary submission, I underline the word voluntary, voluntary submission is, is applicable in a, com, in, a, in a covenantal relationship. God's relationship with us is a covenantal relationship. The church, as we have been seeing through the sermon series, is a covenantal relationship. So godly male eldership and joyful and voluntarily submission of both non-elder males and females and women are applicable. This is important, and this is sometimes just totally lost when we think of headship and submission. In the church, it is not only uh, women who have to submit to biblically qualified male elders. In the church, all non-elder males. Now, if you're a man and if you're not an elder, the Bible is calling you to submit to the male elder. So submission in the church is not only for women, it's for men and women. Both submitting to godly, biblically qualified 
elders. But unlike the family and the church, which are covenantal relationships, all our relationships out there in the city are not covenantal relationships. I'm not in a covenantal relationship with my employer. I did not tell him until death do us part. I did not tell him in sickness and health when I signed up to work for the newspaper I still consult for. I did not tell them that I'm going to work with you till I die or one of us die. It's not a covenantal relationship. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. And God's complementarian design is applicable only in covenantal relationships. So in my workplace, in society, in my city, in, my, in our country, there can be women bosses, women CEOs, women prime ministers, and men can and should joyfully submit to their authority. And I hope this is clear because a lot of people confuse this, are quite confused about this. Marriage and church, so does that mean society also? And the fundamental difference is out there in the city, outside of the church, it is not a covenantal relationship. That's the first application, life in the city. Second is life as a married couple. The Bible has a, a lot to say on the unique, distinct, and, and complementarian roles of the husband and wife in a marriage. Sadly, I just promised all of you that I will keep the sermon to less than 40 minutes. So I'm not going to have time to go into all of that, but I will give you a resource. A few years ago, Guna, most of you know Guna, he preached two brilliant sermons uh, from Ephesians 5 on the role of husbands and the role of wives. Right at the end of the sermon, I'm going to put this uh, service, I'm going to put this up on the WhatsApp group. And I, I promise to come back and preach more sermons on the complementary nature, nature of marriage. So that's the second application. The third application, life in the church. Life in the church. Broadly speaking... If we extend the creation complementarian design of husband and wife, and if we see Jesus endorsing this by appointing only male apostles, we can safely conclude that only biblically qualified men, not all men, only biblically qualified men are to be appointed as elders. Uh, the New Testament also clearly specifies this in 1 Timothy 2. We're going to look at that verse in just a bit. If we read all of the New Testament, uh, there are four to six passages which are very important uh, in trying to understand the gender roles in the church. And I encourage you to go home and read these passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Timothy 3. Broadly, four very important passages. There are other passages as well. But most important passages that cover gender roles in the church. Uh, these passages address four themes. It addresses women covering their heads in the church. Women speaking in the church. And it talks about gender roles in terms of elders and deacons. Uh, again, we're not going to get into a discussion of women uh, covering their heads. Uh, again, if, you, if that's an area of interest to you, let me know. I'll send you a very helpful resource. But let me quickly say that we believe that it is not mandatory, not mandatory for women to cover their heads. It, what, they, what was said there is in a certain context. We believe that no longer applies to everyone. So we believe women, it's not mandatory for women to cover their heads. That said, 
Let's look at one of these four passages to really understand gender roles in the church. That's 2 Timothy chapter 2, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam, and Paul is connecting to the passage in Genesis 2 we read at the beginning of the sermon, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. When this passage says that women are to remain quiet, it does not mean that women cannot speak in the church. One of the rules, basic principles of biblical understanding and interpretation is we have to look at the entire Bible holistically. What is the Bible saying, or the whole Bible saying, not just one verse? And even if you look at one verse, we've got to see that one verse in the full context, which is what we're going to be doing today. If you look at the same Apostle Paul who wrote this, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, in 1 Corinthians 11 and other passages in Scripture, affirm that women are free to pray in the church, women are free to prophesy in the church, women are free to bring a word of encouragement, etc., in the church. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament is very, very clear that it's not expected of women to be completely silent in the church. And I've already said that at New City, women may participate, may join and participate in any ministry responsibility except the distinctive headship office of the elder. So we've seen that women can speak, obviously, because they pray, they prophesy, they bring a word of encouragement. We, we've seen that. But here Paul is saying, I do not pre uh, permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So what does it mean? When Paul says, I do not permit, a woman should be quiet, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, what exactly does that mean? In this verse, the two functions, to teach and to exercise authority, are not two completely disconnected things. They actually mean one thing, they mean authoritative teaching. Authoritative teaching. So what exactly is authoritative teaching that only men can do and women cannot do? It's, I can explain it very simply. This sermon series that we're doing, What is the Church, is authoritative teaching. In this sermon series, we are taking on and handling big chunks of New Testament doctrine. We're handling the doctrine of the church. And according to this guideline in 1 Timothy 2, we believe that only elders, and only men can be elders, biblically qualified men can be elders, only elders and elders in training and people, only those men can do such authoritative teaching. But next Sunday, if the sermon topic is growing in love, could a woman share on such a topic? Right now, we're leaning towards saying a yes, but with a qualification. Growing in love is more a testimonial 
uh, preaching where the wise of the woman uh, can really edify the church. The Bible is very clear. Love one another, encourage one another, sing spiritual psalms to one another, rebuke one another. You know, the Bible is very clear in the one another things. And so we're kind of leaning towards a position where we do believe there is a place for non-authoritative teaching, non-authoritative sharing, if I may be to be absolutely safe, for women. However, with a qualification. And here's the qualification. And I have to thank my dear wife for this qualification. Whenever someone stands at the pulpit and speaks, whether they exercise authority or not, the congregation is going to assume that they are exercising authority. If someone walks into the door right now, they're going to assume I'm a person of authority. Right? And so that's a qualification. So we need to be very careful not to violate God's design, not to violate the design of Christ for his church. So what I'm going to do is invite us to look at the spectrum it's going to come up for us on screen. Look at this look, look at this spectrum. On the one end, we can be absolutely clear, nobody has any doubts about this, that in the church, women can speak, women can pray, women can prophesy, women can, women can bring a testimony, a word of encouragement, women can do all of that. On the other extreme, I think it's pretty clear from scripture, at least the way we see it, that women are not called to be elders, that women are not called to uh, exercise authority over men in, in, in teaching. Those are very clear views. I don't think there's any argument on that. But we do believe that biblically, if you can bring up the next slide, please, biblically, there is a space between these two for the church to hear the voice of the woman and be blessed. And we will nurture that voice within this complementarian design. Within the beauty of the complementarian design of headship and submission that we have learned from the Father and the Son, we will create a space. I think there is a space. And we will nurture that space to hear the voice of, of women. Let me just pause for a moment here. If you're a woman and you've been coming to New City for any length of time, you know, three to four weeks at least, many of you have been coming for a long time, let me ask you a simple question. At New City, do you feel valued and nurtured or do you feel ignored and stifled? Do you feel, in your experience in your city, have you felt encouraged to ministry or have you felt discouraged to ministry? You know, the proof of theology is in the living. The proof of theology is in the living. I hope as a woman, you feel valued, respected, honored, cherished and empowered to do ministry in the way Christ modeled for us. Now, I want to go back to this verse in 1 Timothy and, and kind of just deal with a couple of objections. Very, very uh, healthy 
good objections from egalitarians, and I want to be very respectful of those objections. If you haven't listened, or if you're not here last week, please do listen to that sermon where we talk about A doctrines and B doctrines and our stand on those doctrines. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses, uh, 1, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Egalitarians dismiss this passage and other passages from 1 Corinthians, where it talks about women being silent and all of that. They dismiss those passages saying that those passages were written uniquely for that culture. This is Paul uh, writing to Timothy, who was kind of overseeing the church at Ephesus. So they're saying Ephesus had some weird examples. There were some unruly women there. So this is meant only for the church at Ephesus. And if you read 1, Timothy, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, you could clearly see that there was a problem. Uh, there were some really unruly women. No one liked that here in New City, I can assure you. But in the church at Corinth, they were not so fortunate. Uh, they had some really unruly women who were disrupting uh, the church. And so egalitarians argue that Paul's instructions is not universal. It's for that church. You can't take what Paul said to one church and apply it to the entire universal church. And I would have gladly agreed with them except for one thing. Except for verse 13. Verse 13 says, and Paul says in the same passage, Paul says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first then Eve. Adam was formed first, first, then Eve. And Paul is basing his understanding that only men can be elders and women cannot exercise authority or teaching, authoritative teaching, or women cannot exercise authoritative teaching over men. Paul is basing that entire argument on the creation pattern of Adam being formed first and Eve being formed later. And, you know, I, I have five or six things that I wanted to really uh, help you see in terms of how this pattern of creation evolves. I'm going to just send that to you as notes later so that you can read it uh, by yourself. And so clearly, Paul is not talking. Yes, Paul may be addressing, and I think in the case of Corinth, he's definitely addressing a specific situation in the church. But even when he is addressing a specific situation in a church, he is connecting that to a universal reality of creation design of Adam being created first, then Eve. And this is why at New City, we hold a complementarian position. But all that said... Let me now spell out practically what church life is going to look like for us. What it has looked like, nothing's changed, nothing's changing. This is how we've lived for the last 10 years. It's the first time we're really speaking about all these things. And this is how we're going to live for, for the next 10 years or for as, as long as, uh, till Christ comes again. First, simple, quick set of guidelines. I'm going to run through those. Happy to uh, discuss this as we go along. Only biblically qualified men can be elders in a local church. We've seen that. Only biblically qualified men as elders are called to do authoritative teaching. We can discuss this some more later. Women may speak in church through a prayer or a prophetic word or a word of encouragement. By extension, could women share on things, themes like growing in love without teaching or exercising authority over men? We think so, yes. There is a space, that space for women. And by extension, women are called to lead worship, Women are called to facilitate small groups. 
not authoritative teaching, they are not exercising authority over others in the context of our small groups. In some churches, only elders lead small groups. In some churches, in small groups, uh, it is basically preaching of the word, authoritative preaching of the word. In those settings, women may not. But in our setting, it's facilitation, discussion, mutual encouragement. Women can absolutely facilitate small groups. Women can head the media team. Women can head the finance team. Women can head the hospitality team. Women can head the ushering team. Women can do anything except the role of an authority of, of, of elder appointed by God. We also believe that women can be deacons. At New City, we see deacons as a role, as a service role, helping the elders in the administration of the church. It is not authoritative teaching. We're going to look at this in another sermon as part of the series on elders and, and deacons. So women can be deacons. And very important... Women can preach authoritative and expositional sermons to other women. In fact, the Bible encourages women to do this. So the elders of the church will equip women in every skill of preaching and teaching God's word so that they can lead other women effectively. So in summary, at New City Church, women may join and participate and serve and lead in any ministry responsibility except the distinctive headship office of the elder. Let me close with one last thought. I think this kind of helps bring this all together. Excuse me. Complementarianism is an infinitely more accurate and an infinitely more beautiful portrayal of the gospel than egalitarianism. If you really think objectively, you will see that this value of mutuality or one another is not embedded in the core of egalitarianism. Egalitarians are told men and women are equal, which they are. And egalitarians are told men can do all things women can do, and women can do all things that men can do. And this, therefore, implies that in an egalitarian world, men have no dependence on women, and women have no dependence on men, and there is no interdependence with men and women in an egalitarian world except for the process of procreation. Outside of procreation, in an egalitarian world, men and women are independent, they, have, they are equal, they have no dependence on each other. Mutual obligation of men and women just does not exist in the egalitarian definition. Yes, egalitarianism promotes equality, but community and interdependence is not embedded in the very core of the egalitarian definition. An egalitarian marriage without headship and submission therefore does not reflect the image of God that the human marriage was made in, nor does it reflect the gospel. On the other hand, both equality and mutuality 
are deeply inbuilt in the very definition of complementarianism. The husband provides Christ-like leadership and the wife is the helper that the husband cannot live without. It is not good for man to be alone. In God's beautiful creation, man was insufficient alone to live out God's design. And then God created Eve as a helper that man cannot live out, live without. Complementarianism, therefore, is a far more accurate and a far more beautiful portrayal of the gospel because it includes equality and mutuality and interdependence. In complementarianism, men and women are uniquely called to embody two distinct aspects of the nature of Christ himself. Men are called to lead their wives, to love and to lead their lives in Christ-like sacrifice. Women are called to joyfully, voluntarily submit in Christ-like submission. And so it is in complementarianism that God is inviting the husband and the wife to the incredible joy and privilege and beauty of mirroring the image of the father-son relationship, the father's gracious headship and the son's voluntary submissions, submission in our marriage and in our church. At New City Church, we, we take a complementarian stance because we want to embody the beauty and the excellency of Christ in our marriages and in our church. Let us pray. Lord, we worship you, Lord. Uh, Father, we pray. Uh, Spirit of God, we remember the time when you came uh, to the apostle Saul, when he was still Saul, when he was blinded, and, and you caused the scales on his eyes to fall off and for him to be able to see again. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit, Lord, Take away all the lenses of culture and worldview, all the lenses away, Lord, that we might see the Bible and we might interpret culture through the Bible and not the other way around. Give us grace, Lord, as a church. Uh, even as we've been saying, this is going to be a conversation, not a sermon series. And we pray for the grace and the beauty and the unity of Christ to, to guide uh, these conversations going forward. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.